June the 23rd, 1937. That was the day the incipient BBC television service sent its cameras to Wimbledon and flickering black and white images went to an audience that may have been numbered in the hundreds or more likely dozens, all of them in the southeast of England. There had been great excitement in advance, certainly in Britain's top-selling newspaper, the Daily Express. This was on the front page the previous Thursday. Television triumphs in Wimbledon tryout. The BBC's new untried television transmission van achieved unprecedented success while standing in Wimbledon tennis ground car park yesterday afternoon. The tests succeeded beyond most people's hopes. Men could be seen walking about the car park and the courts. Cigarette smoke was visible. An Alsatian dog was seen running about. When actual play begins, I am told, viewers will be able to see the ball. (laughs) Well, not exactly. Uh, There were some difficulties on the day, partly because of interference from electrical equipment in a hospital near the Alexandra Palace transmitter. But the Express assured its readers the pictures were clear enough if you lived on a hill near Woking. (laughs) The television critic in The Listener, the BBC's in-house intellectual magazine, put the best interpretation it could on it all. As in the news films, it has seldom been possible to watch the progress of the ball itself, but the strokes and the movements on the court have all been so clearly visible that the absence of the ball has hardly seemed to trouble the viewers. The ball, oh, that old thing. (laughs) But the experiment was officially deemed a success. And two months later, at the annual festival of the British broadcasting industry, Radio Olympia, the cameras were set up in London Zoo, so visitors to the show could observe the chimpanzees. Those of us who remember the Wimbledon career of, say, John McEnroe uh, might think this was an appropriate kind of follow-up. Television was then a novelty, a frippery. The televisors, as they were called, cost 40 or 50 guineas, which is well over £2,000 today, and were bought by the kind of people, if they lived in the southeast, who bought iPads on day one. In just 15 years since the sale of wireless sets took off, Britain had become what was called then a listening-in country but it wasn't yet ready to become a seeing-in country. And that wouldn't really change over the next 15 years. There was, of course, a slight distraction uh, about to happen. There's a wonderful old Tom Lehrer song that goes, Once all the Germans were warlike and mean, but that couldn't happen again. We taught them a lesson in 1918. And they've hardly bothered us since then. (laughs) Anyway, it helps to understand how remote the television future was in 1937 
when you realise that among the other novelties at Radio Olympia that year were battery-operated wirelesses, not transistors, but cumbersome great things, essential because huge chunks of rural England still didn't have electricity. Uh, The valley where I live in Herefordshire didn't actually get on the mains until 1964. The BBC's early TV transmissions were actually ahead of those in America, uh, but that lead wasn't to last. The Americans were able to develop their TV service during the war when the British television went off the air, and there wasn't much money around in Britain in the immediate aftermath of war. And one obvious consequence of the BBC having a monopoly was the lack of commercial imperative to innovate. But the one great, indeed continuing triumph of the BBC is that it would find its own artistic reasons to keep moving forward. In 1938, it showed a string of sporting events, such as the boat race, the England-Scotland football match at Wembley, and the cup final. By 1939, television had its own dedicated commentators instead of just using the radio feed. When TV as it wasn't yet called, resumed in 1946, sport was a major feature of the schedules. And thus we had the real start of the ongoing relationship between television and sport. A marriage, indeed. Though one that was to produce a great deal of crockery throwing over the years. The initial bone of contention was, of course, about money. But only indirectly... It was not about the value of the rights, which were to dominate ever after. It was about the issue of rediffusion. The governing bodies of sports didn't much care what sport was shown on the tiny little novelty set to an audience that was still barely into five figures. They did mind it being picked up by pirates and shown in cinemas, where audiences were in the millions. The late 1940s were the greatest years in history for live sport. Huge crowds watched football matches, top ones, bottom ones, whatever. Even county cricket grounds were packed. Still, there were differing views on whether television was primarily a publicity boon or a competing attraction. It certainly was becoming a competing attraction. In 1949, the Manchester Evening Chronicle found a man who had installed eight tip-up seats in his drawing room to create a mini-cinema. Putting an aerial outside your house, it said, was a guarantee of a social life. An interesting contrast, incidentally, with the early days of Sky, when a dish was regarded as the mark of Cain. Um, But that's next week's story. Um, (laughs) That that year, 1949, there was an attempt by some sporting administrators to impose a general ban on television. It didn't hold, although in 1952 the newest tradition of showing the cup, cup final was broken for the first time and the match went back off screen. But in 1953, the BBC and, and the FA kissed, made up and agreed a fee of £1,000. And so the nation, or a small part of it, was able to see one of the most famous of all football matches, the Matthews final, when the great Stanley Matthews led Blackpool back from 3-1 down to a 4-3 win on a day of spring sunshine in the presence of Her Majesty. A day, said the Times, when 
Quote, the game of football, the game of the people, was crowned with all felicity in this year of coronation and national rejoicing. And a month later, the Queen was crowned, with the TV cameras present. That was the day, in folk memory, when the nation watched TV together and the television age truly began. The number of TV licences doubled in two years, from two million to four million, and the coronation was the catalyst, though I would suggest the Matthews final had something to do with it too. It's reasonable to have a great man theory in the history of the media as it is in the history of anything else. British newspapers developed in the way they did because of a handful of significant dominant men. Delane, C.P. C.P. Scott, Northcliffe, Beaverbrook, Cudlip, Murdoch. British broadcasting would have been vastly different had John Reith not applied for a job at the infant BBC. And we can apply the same theory to sport on TV. Peter Dimmock joined the BBC after the RAF, where he had been a pilot instructor. In 1946, he was lying on the pavement outside the studios with its headphones on to cue in the announcer Jasmine Bly and welcome back viewers after the short interruption. Dimmock had wanted to be a journalist, but an American friend had told him TV was the medium of the future, rather as Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate was advised to get into plastics. He got the job because there was something of an RAF mafia at the BBC who liked having other RAF men around, for two good reasons. Firstly, they understood about connecting Watsits to thingamabobs, which was very important in the early BBC, and they worked long hours without complaining. In 1950, Dimmock was joined by a slightly younger man, an ex-para called Paul Fox, I'm delighted to say is with us today, brought in from Pathé News as a lowly scriptwriter for the television newsreel. Dimmock was already a major figure at the BBC, um, and was both the producer and the director of the coronation coverage. In 1954, Fox went to Dimmock and suggested that a weekly sports magazine programme might be a good idea. Within a month, it was on the air. You could do that because the chain of command was so short, Fox explained. It began at 7.30 on a Thursday night, after the newsreel and before amateur wrestling and animal, vegetable and mineral. (laughs) Fox's editor, Dimmock, as presenter. In week two, they had a piece of what Fox described as fantastic luck. There was a tip-off that it might be worth coming to Oxford for a routine athletics meeting at Ifley Road because something extraordinary might be about to happen in the mile. It was good advice. The Daily Express was there too. The announcement of the result, the Express reported was made with no more emotion than a porter announcing the next train to crew. The result of event number nine, first number 41, R.G. Bannister, formerly of Exeter and Merton Colleges, with a time that is a new meeting and track record, and which, subject to ratification, will be a new English native, a British national, a British all European, British Empire, 
and world record. The time was 3 minutes, 59.4 seconds. I don't think anybody heard that 59.4 seconds uh, because of the roar that greeted the three minutes. The point was that the Everest of athletics, the four minutes mile, had been conquered, and by an English native and a British national at that. The Express account was written by Desmond Hackett, the most famous sports writer of the era, and more of him later. But Sportsview was there too, and they got Bannister back to London and into the studio in time for the programme, even though he insisted on going home to Harrow first to change into his suit and tie. They couldn't show the film, because at that stage it was still impossible to process it in time. It was shown the following night. Brilliant, breathless pictures, said the Express TV reporter when they did get on the air. By skilful use of telescopic lenses, the TV audience throughout Britain had a better review of the race even than the two men who ran with Bannister. Sportsview never looked back, said Paul Fox. It ran for the next ten years, and even before I was reminded by seeing the clip that we showed two weeks ago, I could still remember Peter Dimmock's smile and his little moustache. He looked about 90 to my young eyes then. Uh, But he wasn't, because he's only just into his 90s now, very much with us and with it, and my friend Martin Kellner was able to interview him last year. Uh, But Dimmock disappeared from the screen in the 1960s, though he was a far more significant figure than his relatively brief on-screen career suggests. By 1954, TV audiences regularly numbered in the millions. The BBC's mastery of this vast market was to be short-lived. Somewhat uncharacteristically, the cautious and consensual Conservative government in the early 1950s, presided over by the ageing Churchill, was determined to introduce commercial television. Bien Ponson opinion was horrified about the introduction of American excesses to the placid British broadcasting scene of the 1950s, and in the end, ITV's remit was hedged about with all kinds of restrictions. Nonetheless, from the moment of its launch in the London area in 1955, ITV met a need, or at least a demand, that the BBC had only intermittently chosen to address. Consistently, in those early years of two-channel competition, the split in audience was something like three to one in favour of ITV. To my generation, the advertising jingles conjure up our youth more effectively than anything else at all. You'll wonder where the yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. Oh, Mo washes not only clean, not only white, but bright. (laughs) One thousand and one cleans a big, big carpet for less than half a crap. For less than half a crap. Take a tip, take a Bristol, a real cigarette, it's a Bristol. And you're never alone with a strand. <laughs> uh, any other offers? <laughs> any, uh, any more? Uh, the, the, the trill makes budgets bounce with health. Uh, this is very, very important educational because that advert went on to say, did it not? that budgies get a fatal disease that shortens their lives, which is how I learned what the definition of the word tautology. (laughs) 
Uh, I could go on. <laughs> Sunday night at the London Palladium, hosted by a youngster called Bruce Forsyth, was watched once ITV had gone national by close to half the population. But in sport, that didn't happen. The split, in broad terms, would be the, would be the reverse. Three to one in favour of the BBC, if, if both sides were showing the same match. Often more. In the 35 years between the start of commercial TV and the arrival of satellite, ITV Sport was most of the time little more than an irritant to the mighty BBC, a buzzing wasp rather than a rampaging lion. Um, it is possible to come up with various explanations for this phenomenon. That different people emphasise different aspects. Um, the issue of the so-called listed events is a major part of the history of TV sport, which will be discussed uh, again next week. But, but two things need to be made clear about this now. These restrictions are not exclusively British. Almost every developed nation on Earth has a similar method of ensuring that major sporting occasions are available to most of the population. And it isn't new. During the debate on the act that set up ITV, a minister described this as the most difficult problem in the bill. In order to placate Tory backbenchers, terrified at public response to the loss of Wimbledon or test matches to a non-national service, there were reserve powers to prevent this happening. It was they, these were never invoked because BBC and ITV agreed on ten sporting events to which neither side could have exclusive rights. And that sealed ITV's fate as far as sport was concerned. Once the initial novelty of um, Pepsodent and Omo wore off, viewers did not want their sports watching interrupted by adverts, even though ITV, unlike the Americans, were restrained enough not to want to interrupt a football match. As time went on, the BBC acquired other advantages. Later TV sets had a default setting that brought BBC One up first. And in 1964, the third channel, BBC Two, arrived, giving the BBC infinitely greater flexibility in scheduling. ITV was also hobbled by its devolved structure. More than a dozen regional franchises emerged which were able to show more or less what they wanted and they had commitments to advertisers. When a controller told Jonathan Martin for many years the BBC's head of sport that they had to leave a big sporting event to switch to the news, he could roar back, this is the effing news, <laughs> and prevail. That was almost impossible on the other side. You had to negotiate with the independent fiefdoms, explained the former ITV executive David Elstein former News International lecturer, David Elstein. So you got incoherence and a lack of commitment and flakiness. ITV's head of sport, John Bromley, was a legend among his peers for his charm and his expenses. But he was like the Grand Admiral of a rusted hulk. Institutionally, ITV sport seemed to have a zero attention span. As late as 2005, long into the Sky era, it paid big money and bought the rights to the boat race to irritate the BBC and generate a day's headlines. Then it forgot why on earth it had wanted it. BBC bought it back last year for a reported fee of zilch. 
The upshot of it all was that ITV Sport began to get acquire a reputation for being accident-prone. It couldn't be trusted. Dimmock recalled that one year they poached the show jumping from the, from the BBC, and then just as Harry Llewellyn on Fox Hunter was coming to the crucial jump, they switched to something else. They secured the 1967 Gillette Cup cricket final, which had a sensational finish. Not on ITV, it didn't. Even last year, they were still at it, showing adverts instead of goals in both the World Cup and the FA Cup. One bookmaker offered odds on when it was going to happen next. <laughs> in the early days, there was another factor in favour of the BBC. Long after he vanished from the screen, Dimmock remained BBC's head of outside broadcasters. Uh, head of outside broadcasts, and he was known as a master of negotiation, tight-fisted as hell in the BBC tradition, but deploying a mixture of charm and persistence more associated with Latin lovers. Paul Fox gives him the credit for getting the cameras into the Abbey for the coronation. The Queen was against, he told me, because she was worried about the heat from the lights. The court said she'd got enough to do without worrying about television. The Duke of Norfolk who was Earl, Earl, the Duke of Norfolk, who as Earl Marshal of England was in charge of the ceremony, was against. Churchill was against too. Peter arranged a trial run and showed that the lights really wouldn't be that intrusive. Then he went to the loo and found himself next to the Duke. Come on, Bernard, he said, say yes. And finally he did. Dimmock had one even tougher opponent, Mirabelle Topham, owner of Aintree, home of the Grand National, the one major sporting event that totally eluded the television cameras throughout the 1950s. She would not give in. Ma Topham, Dimmock sighed, recollecting in the tranquility of old age. My grey hairs, a lot of those came from that. She was an extraordinary woman. Extraordinary woman. I spent hours and hours negotiating with her. Eventually, eventually, I got her to agree. The first TV Grand National was 1960. The symbol of the BBC Imperium was Grandstand. Started in 1958 with its mixture of sports, culminating in the football results coming over the teleprinter. It far outshone the ITV equivalent world of sport, one TV man thought that World of Sport's essential lack of seriousness was symbolised by the kipper tie worn by the host, Dickie Davis. The programme would start competitively enough, but as the years went by, uh, sorry, and, and as the years went by, ITV's horse racing coverage would actually outshine the BBC's, especially after it moved to Channel 4 in the mid-1980s. But World of Sport just dribbled away at tea time into professional wrestling, beloved by my father and millions of ladies of a certain age, <laughs> but since the fights were fixed, not exactly a sport. If there was any doubts about the BBC sports dominance, it was maintained by the intense professionalism of the men who ran it. Paul Fox, the fearsome Brian Cowgill, both of whom rose to senior positions well beyond sport, and on-screen performers, especially David Coleman, who by the 1960s had become the face and voice of the BBC at the major events. 
Coleman was a notoriously demanding colleague who expected those around him to match his standards. But every sport the BBC covered had recognisable voices associated with it. Voices were almost recognisable anyway. <coughs> Who's doing the boat race? Who co- who's commentating on the boat race? Was it John Snag? It was John, it was John Snag. It was, it, was, it was, I assumed it, assumed it was. Um, there were others who weren't on there. Um, Golf's Henry Longhurst with a voice like Pink Gin. Manic Murray Walker on r- motor racing. <laughs> Peerless Peter O'Sullivan calling the horses and Dan Maskell. Ooh, I say, what a peach of a volley. Uh, Voice embodied Wimbledon at least as much as strawberries and cream. And so on. As the Church of England declined, Britain worshipped Christmas, the National Health Service and the BBC. We grumbled about the last two, but we recognised that there were reasons to, that they were reasons to live here that made up for the vile weather and the general sense of decay. And sport was something we did on television better than anyone else. Didn't play it better than anyone else, so that's a separate issue. When I first went to Australia to cover the 1982 Commonwealth Games and heard their star commentator Norman May gibbering away, rarely bothering to mention a non-Australian, I knew it was true. Britain had the least worst television in the world. As far as sport was concerned, it was already official. In 1977, the Annan Committee, investigating TV and radio on behalf of the government, declared the coverage of sport is one of the success stories of broadcasting. In many ways, it seemed like an unchanging world, like an Edwardian summer. To many of us, the sporting year represented something as immutable as the ecclesiastical year, and the BBC played a calendrical role 
in recording the sporting seasons. From the rugby internationals amid the mud and frost of winter to the match play golf at Wentworth with the leaves tumbling onto the fairways and all the joys of cricket and Wimbledon and Ascot and summer in between. The years themselves each appeared the same, except for the heightened drama of the even-numbered years when there would either be a World Cup or an Olympics. For a sports lover, it seemed in many ways an extension of that mythical childhood, a long, glorious, eternal summer. Sport on the BBC. But the world does not stand still, ever. Under the BBC's aegis, sport did increase its reach and grasp. Thanks to BBC Two, there could be many more hours a day. In 1967, Colour TV came to Britain, starting in Wimbledon fortnight, and the first personality of the new era was a red-headed ball boy who the Wimbledon authorities, with a fine sense of occasion, kept assigning to centre court. The technology became less rickety, though it remained by today's standards primitive. Satellite time was not infinite, and for many years the BBC didn't have the resources to cover more than the last six holes of the open golf, and we did without. The Football League's implacable opposition to pre-war radio continued into the TV age. Match of the Day, showing Saturday night highlights, arrived in 1964 on BBC Two with a start so low-key as to be almost invisible. Hardly anyone had a set of able to take BBC Two, so the audience for the first programme, Liverpool v Arsenal, was actually only half the attendance that actually saw the match. (laughs) And there were downsides. The BBC's grandeur was matched by a certain amount of self-regard. As anyone who has ever been to a sporting event um, and been knocked out of the way by uh, um, some minor BBC employee doing the most important job in the world, far more important than your atomic science or brain surgery. And sport was, sport was headquartered in Kensington House, away from the rest of the organisation, and was seen by some senior executives as a mighty stronghold run by warlords too powerful to tame. Time makes such empires vulnerable. It was a harsh school, one sports reporter from a newer generation told me, and everyone seemed to have been there forever. It wasn't only getting old, it was also like sport itself. And this has, I fear, been reflected in the cast of characters so far. Overwhelmingly, overbearingly male. But for a long time, the situation suited pretty much everyone who mattered. I certainly don't remember bothering that the BBC couldn't show every hole of the golf. We enjoyed what they did show. ITV would occasionally stage a rape and pillage raid on their sporting portfolio, like primitive tribesmen plundering a nearby village that had more cattle. But ITV weren't necessarily that bothered either. After all, a commercial TV franchise was, in Lord Thompson's words, a license to print money. And ITV's interests and the BBC's were not necessarily that distinct. Both, understandably, wanted to keep the cost of rights down. Sky executives would later use the word not duopoly, but cartel. 
And from 1982, it wasn't quite a duopoly either because Channel 4 came on the scene and under the leadership of their head of sport, Adrian Metcalf, imaginatively followed the remit to be different by picking up the sports the big two had ignored, in some, case un- some cases understandably. It was American football, sumo, and even the arcane Indian sport of kabaddi, which, as far as I can see, is an elaborate version of hopscotch. But when Channel 4 did try to break through into major sports, they found themselves regarded as interlopers. During Michael Graves' decade as controller, he decided to try and steal the open golf, a long-standing feature of the BBC schedule. This was around the time an Australian friend first said to me that the BBC's golf coverage had become a bit dated, which I remember greatly affronted me, so it just insulted my Labrador. I think now he was on to something. And so did Grade, who was encouraged by the, BB- by the American sports entrepreneur Mark McCormack, the most powerful figure in golf and much else besides, a fact recognised by the BBC, who indulged him by using him in, at the Open as a commentator. Grade, Grade was due to make his presentation to the committee of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club at Brown's Hotel in London. He had offered a huge increase on the existing BBC figure, promised to cover junior golf and sponsor golfing scholarships and guaranteed to show highlights in peak time rather than at around midnight. His classic account of what happened appeared in his autobiography and he swears every word is true. I went along to Brown's Hotel, buoyed by a phone call I'd had from Mark McCormack assuring me the deal was in the bag. He'd been at the BBC presentation and reported that our bid topped theirs by £5 million. It was a shoo-in. I strolled confidently into the room. Confronting me were 20 or 30 dour, dull, grey men, identically dressed in blue blazers, grey slacks and R&A ties, the creme de la creme of British golf. It was a wet Monday evening at the Glasgow Empire. Row upon row of sullen citizens defying a performer to interest or entertain them. And I was there to pay these royal and ancient gentlemen a fortune, for God's sake. I died the death. I opened with a gentle joke that went down about as well as the church choir singing Sheep May Safely Graze at the Butcher's Funeral. (laughs) They made it obvious they didn't like me. They didn't want to be subjected to this ordeal in which they had to sit quietly and listen to someone else's voice. Mark McCormack got so exasperated that at one point he stood up and started berating them, which, while I appreciated his gesture, didn't help my case. He misread the mood completely. The issue wasn't about money, and therefore not something Mark would understand. (laughs) Mike Benalek, The secretary of the Royal and Ancient rang me later in the day to tell me that the BBC had won the contract. As I said to him, if I'd known that the lowest bidder would win, I'd have offered nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But increasingly, that kind of attitude was a relic. It's a name Royal and Ancient might imply. McCormack was a Cleveland attorney and wannabe golfer who in 1960 founded the International Management Group with Arnold Palmer, the first great golf star of the TV era, 
as his first client. Soon, the world's great sportsmen and women would all beat a path to McCormick's door, content to let, to let IMG take up to a quarter of their income, knowing the pot would be exponentially bigger with IMG's help than without. McCormick was also, as the Channel 4 story shows, highly adept at running with the hare and hunting with the hounds. First, he got the performers to understand that they were not chattels, but had skills and an image that was highly marketable and exploitable. Then the people who ran the sports began to understand that this also applied to their product. This process happened much, much quicker in the US than it did in Britain. In 1965, the average Major League Baseball player was being paid $14,000 a year close to about 100,000 in today's terms. In 1992, the average salary passed a million dollars. By 2010, that figure had risen above 3.3 million. This process was punctuated by a series of bitter industrial disputes in which the players habitually emerged triumphant over the owners. In the mid-1980s, the cricketer Nick Pocock then the captain, captain of Hampshire, told the story of how he had met a baseball player who asked him how much he earned. £4,000, said Pocock. And how many games do you play? So Pocock counted up all the different forms of three-day cricket and one-day cricket and said, oh, well, it's about 41, 42 a year. So the baseball player did some sums, so 40 times 4,000, and he converted pounds to dollars, and he said, hmm, that's not so bad. No, said Pocock, you don't understand. That's 4,000 pounds a year. <laughs> and the case of football was even more startling, given the much greater popularity of the game. Footballers were paid a maximum, maximum of £20 a week until 1961, and although that figure rose quickly once the limit was lifted, the game was to endure some very evil times in the decades ahead. And the brief Channel 4-induced craze for grid gridiron in the mid-1980s coincided with the descent of English football into a pit of despair. At that time... The most vibrant personality in British sport by far was the cricketer Ian Botham, a rampager on and off the field. The leading English footballer was the very dull Brian Robson, and not merely because the leading English footballer, but the leading player in English football. The great footballing characters were the more bombastic managers like Brian Clough and Tommy Doherty. Attending matches was made repulsive by hooliganism, and the 1980s were bookmarked by footballing tragedies. The Bradford City Fire, 56 dead. The Heisel Riot, 39 dead. The Hillsborough Disaster, 96 dead. After Heisel, when a wall collapsed following aggression by Liverpool supporters at the European Cup final, English clubs were banned by, from European competitions. BBC and ITV were so disillusioned by football that for the first half of the 1985-86 season, it disappeared from the screens completely. And hard now to remember that Margaret Thatcher spent the declining years of her tenure in Downing Street not just imposing a poll tax, but trying to force through a law that would have made it illegal to attend a football match 
without an identity card. There were times in the 1980s when football's preeminence seemed severely in danger. In 1982, Notts County, then in the old First Division, i.e. the Premier Division, were drawing crowds that fell below 7,000. A Guardian reporter discovered that up the road, the local ice hockey team, the Nottingham Panthers, were not just filling their 2,800-seat capacity stadium, but the people were queuing for almost five hours before every match to be sure of getting a ticket. Ice hockey, again with virtually no tradition in Britain, had discovered what football had not, that spectators wanted a comfortable and safe sporting experience away from the threat of violence that was perpetually there on the football grounds of the 1980s. They wanted a day that was female-friendly and family-friendly. They obviously didn't mind violence on the field. You can't get more brutal than ice hockey, for heaven's sake. But they didn't want their wives and kids threatened. The reporter saw this as a harbinger of football's demise. Beneath our feet, he wrote, the entire fabric of British sport is starting to tremble and shift. He was overexcited. Or to be exact, I was overexcited <laughs> since I was that reporter. There was indeed going to be an earthquake, uh, but not the one I'd anticipated. Things were already changing in the US. The ABC network, under the aegis of McCormick's contemporary Rue Knowledge, was developing a new style of presenting sport as entertainment, putting it into prime time, especially with his pioneering Monday night football show, i.e. American football, packaging it as entertainment. As his star presenter Howard Cazell put it, there's no damn way you can go up against Liz Taylor and Doris Day in primetime TV and present sports as just sports. All that was perceived over here as typical American excess, though the Football League, in desperation, finally allowed a few live matches to be televised in the mid-1980s. In Britain, the signs of the world to come were much subtler and even subterranean. Take the fate of Desmond Hackett, who we last heard of down at Ifley Road in 1954. Through the 1960s, when it was impossible to ignore the Daily Express... He was the very embodiment of the Fleet Street sports reporter. He was a showman, and his trademark was his brown bowler hat. Incidentally, whenever privatise a spoof sports story to this day, it says, by Desmond Hack, as a little tribute. He promised to kick the brown bowler hat down Fleet Street if Arsenal won a European game. In 1967... He promised to walk barefoot home from Wembley if Chelsea won the FA Cup. Since the promise was made after the third round and Chelsea reached the final, the fun kept going for months. He said he would clean the window of boxer Jack Bodell's Derbyshire bungalow if Bodell beat Joe Bugner. And he did. If Hackett was right, fine. If he was wrong, even better. Vaudeville in print, one colleague said admiringly. Along with the showmanship, Hackett had a fine imagination. Press box colleagues marvelled at Hackett's account of the Battle of Bern, the violent match between Hungary and Brazil at the 1954 World Cup, 
and how the shirt was ripped from his back, especially as they knew he hadn't left the safety of the press box. Still not 100% certain he was really present when he wrote his um, graphic account of Bannister at Ifley Road, but I think he was. I, um, I interviewed Des in a pub in Clapham in 1989, three years before he died. He was a nice old boy, not at all rich, living in a small South London flat. The Express had paid him humongous expenses, but not much of a pensionable salary. But he'd had a great life, and he repented none of it. You'd get an idea, he explained, and you'd draw the truth towards it. (laughs) When I shyly mentioned the Battle of Burns story, he said... Well, if you see it happen, it detracts from the story. (laughs) The thing was, he added, I have never looked back and said I hurt anyone's feelings. It's my main claim to fame. And his contemporaries all agreed that Des never did any harm to anyone. But at that time, 1989, when we were talking, good nature was not an obvious qualification for a Fleet Street sports writer. By then, the Express was irrelevant, and the paper that held sway was Kelvin McKenzie's vindictive tearaway son, which had just headlined a story about the England manager Bobby Robson. In the name of God, go! Stupid, isn't it, said Des. It's still a bloody game. Television did for Desmond Hackett. The more people could see for themselves, the more they realised he was talking through his brown bowler. He was forced into early retirement, and the nastier methods of the sun held sway. Having used, in the name of God, go, the previous years, the sun headlines on the England team's performances at the 1990 World Cup uh, held in Italy included pathetic, arrogant, smug, World Cup wallies, your bunkers, Bobby, we're a carbuncle on the face of soccer, pathetic, boring rubbish. England reached the semi-finals of the 1990 World Cup, went out to Germany only on penalties, and many good judges believed that had England won the shootout, they would certainly have beaten Argentina in the final and become world champions. Bobby Robson's reputation grew with the years. He was knighted in 2002 and died in 2009, garlanded with universal praise for his football knowledge and his humanity. Though the sun could hurt cruelly, its bullets were not necessarily fatal. And that semi-final, which we saw a snatch of before, gave a stark warning on the limited power of all newspapers. That was the night when Paul Gascoigne, England's most vibrant player, was booked for a second time, as we saw, and thus knew that if England did qualify, he couldn't play in the final. Well, John Motson said he almost cried. Um, later became clear that he did cry and that was caught later in close-up by the TV cameras. Those of us watching the game in the stadium, which I was, failed to see it. 
1990 was the first summer after the Berlin Wall fell, a time of remarkable optimism for the world. For me too. I was young-ish, in love and about to be married. And though I was covering the World Cup, I managed to engineer things so that I could commute between the interesting things happening at home and those happening in Italy. And there was a huge disconnect between the two because anyone who was in Italy thought that what was happening was very uninteresting indeed. It was, according to all the experts, the boring most boring, least skillful, most defensive tournament of all time. Across the world, audiences were captivated. 80% of Czechoslovaks were said to be watching their country's games, even though that country would soon cease to exist. Half of Singapore was said to be sitting up all night. There was a riot in Calcutta when the electricity failed during the match. And whenever Cameroon scored, which was pretty regularly until England knocked them out, in the, uh, uh, the roar could be heard across every city in Africa. Never was the power of football to unite the world more clearly demonstrated. And the power of the two great channels who dominated British television and had the rights to that World Cup. I was at my home in London for that quarter-final, and I remember vividly the silence on the street when I went out to put the dustbin out at half-time. Football was back. BBC and ITV both basked in the ratings. No one was taking that much notice of those ugly dishes starting to sprout on south-facing walls mostly in the dingier corners of English cities. An earthquake was indeed imminent, and it had nothing to do with bloody ice hockey. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed.